Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Welcome to Tales to Terrify. Part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Welcome. Welcome back. Back to the District of Wonders, to the Nook, to Tales to Terrify, and welcome, of course, to part two of William Hope Hodgson's House on the Borderland. I'm Lawrence Santoro, and again, tonight, we'll have no ads and extras when you've settled, have your treats, your chums, your beverages sorted out. We will set forth our you ready? Okay. I think some updating is in order. So just like they do it on the television previously on House in the Borderland, we begin with two friends, Tonneson and Berignog. They've come on holiday to the remote village of Creighton in rural Ireland. After several days of successful fishing, they stumble upon the ruins of a strangely shaped house bordering a large lake. In the fallen remains of one section of the house, they discover the journal of an unidentified man who recorded his last days in the house before its destruction. 
this recluse, as he is known, begins his journal by telling how he acquired the house, that it had a bad reputation for some 200 years prior to his ownership, enabling him to acquire the place for a ridiculously low price. Little else is told about the history of the house except that it is shunned by the villagers of Creighton who believe that it was built by the devil. The house is of stone and is located a considerable distance downstream from the village. It is surrounded by a great garden and appears to have been built over a vast circular chasm. The place has a huge multi-room cellar, embellished with weird, fantastic sculptures. Outwardly, the building is covered in little curved towers and pinnacles, with outlines suggestive of leaping flames, while the body of the building is in the form of a circle. The recluse's journal offers details of his day-to-day life there with his sister and his faithful dog, Pepper. He writes that he started his journal so to record the strange experiences and the horrors that are taking place in and around the house. Eventually, the recluse relates a vision in which he travels through what seems to be interstellar space. The voyage ended at a vast arena, the Plain of Silence, he calls it, surrounded by mountains with representations of mythological beast gods, demons, and other bestial horrors on their slopes. In the center of the plain stands a house identical to his own, except that this house is far larger and appears to be made of a green, jade-like substance. Along the way, he sees a huge, menacing, humanoid swine thing. He is then returned to the earth and... After his vision in the arena, the recluse becomes fascinated with the pit adjacent to his house and begins to explore it, shortly after which he is attacked by humanoid, pig-like creatures that he names the Swine Things. These are bipedal creatures with pallid-colored, pig-like heads, approximately the size of a grown man. They emerge from the pit on the far side of the gardens, and make repeated stealthy attempts to break into the house of the recluse, communicating with each other in a thick, guttural speech. This alone suggests they possess a cunning sentience. The recluse describes the swine things as half-beast, half-something else, and entirely unholy, with eyes which betray a horribly human intelligence, superhumanly foul. The struggle with these creatures lasts for several nights of greater and greater ferocity. Here, now, is part two of House on the Borderland by William Hope Hodgson.
Chapter 7 The Attack I spent some time puzzling how to strengthen the study door. Finally, I went down to the kitchen and with some trouble brought up several heavy pieces of timber. These I wedged up slantwise against it from the floor, nailing them top and bottom. For half an hour I worked hard and at last got it shored to my mind. Then, feeling easier, I resumed my coat, which I had laid aside, and proceeded to attend to one or two matters before returning to the tower. It was whilst thus employed that I heard a fumbling at the door, and the latch was tried. Keeping silence, I waited. Soon I heard several of the creatures outside. They were grunting to one another softly. Then for a minute there was quietness. Suddenly... There sounded a quick, low grunt, and the door creaked under a tremendous pressure. It would have burst inward but for the supports I had placed. The strain ceased as quickly as it had begun, and there was more talk. Presently one of the things squealed softly, and I heard the sound of others approaching. There was a short confabulation, then again silence, and I realised that they had called several more to assist. Feeling that now was the supreme moment, I stood ready with my rifle presented. If the door gave, I would at least slay as many as possible. Again came the low signal, and once more the door cracked under a huge force. For a minute, perhaps, the pressure was kept up, and I waited nervously, expecting each moment to see the door come down with a crash. But no, the struts held, and the attempt proved abortive. Then followed more of their horrible grunting talk, and, whilst it lasted, I thought I distinguished the noise of fresh arrivals. After a long discussion during which the door was several times shaken, they became quiet once more, and I knew that they were going to make a third attempt to break it down. I was almost in despair. The props had been severely tried in the two previous attacks, and I was sorely afraid that this would prove too much for them. At that moment, like an inspiration, a thought flashed into my troubled brain. Instantly, for it was no time to hesitate, I ran from the room and up stair after stair. This time it was not one of the towers that I went, but out to the flat, leaded roof itself. Once there I raced across to the parapet that walls it round and looked down. As I did so I heard the short, grunted signal, and even up there caught the crying of the door under the assault. There was not a moment to lose, and leaning over I aimed quickly and fired. The report rang sharply, and almost blending with it came the loud splud of the bullet striking its mark. From below rose a single wail, and the door ceased its groaning. Then, as I took my weight from off the parapet, a huge piece of the stone coping slid from under me, and fell with a crash among the disorganised throng beneath. Several horrible shrieks quavered through the night air, and then I heard a sound of scampering feet. Cautiously I looked over. In the moonlight I could see the great coping stone lying right across the threshold of the door. I thought I saw something under it. Several things. White. But I could not be sure. And so a few minutes passed. As I stared... I saw something come round out of the shadow of the house. It was one of the things. It went up to the stone silently and bent down. I was unable to see what it did. In a minute it stood up. 
It had something in its talons, which it put to its mouth and tore at. For the moment I did not realize. Then, slowly, I comprehended. The thing was stooping again. It was horrible. I started to load my rifle. When I looked again, the monster was tugging at the stone, moving it to one side. I leant the rifle on the coping and pulled the trigger. The brute collapsed on its face and kicked slightly. Simultaneously, almost with the report, I heard another sound, that of breaking glass. Waiting only to recharge my weapon, I ran from the roof and down the first two flights of stairs. Here I paused to listen. As I did so, there came another tinkle of falling glass. It appeared to come from the floor below. Excitedly, I sprang down the steps and, guided by the rattle of the window sash, reached the door of one of the empty bedrooms at the back of the house. I thrust it open. The room was but dimly illuminated by the moonlight, most of the light being blotted out by the moving figures at the window. Even as I stood, one crawled through into the room. Leveling my weapon, I fired point-blank at it, filling the room with a deafening bang. When the smoke cleared, I saw that the room was empty and the window free. The room was much lighter. The night air blew in coldly through the shattered panes. Down below in the night I could hear a soft moaning and a confused murmur of swine voices. Stepping to one side of the window, I reloaded and then stood there waiting. Presently I heard a scuffling noise. From where I stood in the shadow I could see without being seen. Nearer came the sounds, and then I saw something come up above the sill and clutch at the broken window frame. It caught a piece of the woodwork, and now I could make out that it was a hand and arm. A moment later the face of one of the swine creatures rose into view. Then, before I could use my rifle or do anything, there came a sharp crack, crack, and the window frame gave way under the weight of the thing. Next instant a squashing thud and a loud outcry told me that it had fallen to the ground. With a savage hope that it had been killed, I went to the window. The moon had gone behind a cloud so that I could see nothing, though a steady hum of jabbering just beneath where I stood indicated that there were several more of the brutes close at hand. As I stood there looking down, I marvelled how it had been possible for the creatures to climb so far for the wall is comparatively smooth while the distance to the ground must be at least eighty feet. All at once, as I bent peering, I saw something indistinctly that cut the grey shadow of the house side with a black line. It passed the window to the left at a distance of about two feet. Then I remembered that it was a gutter pipe that had been put there some years ago to carry off the rainwater. I had forgotten about it. I could see now how the creatures had managed to reach the window. Even as the solution came to me, I heard a faint slithering, scratching noise and knew that another of the brutes was coming. I waited some odd moments, then leant out of the window and felt the pipe. To my delight, I found that it was quite loose and I managed, using the rifle barrel as a crowbar, to lever it out from the wall. I worked quickly. Then, taking hold with both hands, I wrenched the whole concern away and hurled it down, with the thing still clinging to it, into the garden. For a few minutes longer I waited there, listening. But after the first general outcry I heard nothing. 
I knew now that there was no more reason to fear an attack from this quarter. I had removed the only means of reaching the window, and as none of the other windows had any adjacent water pipes to tempt the climbing powers of the monsters, I began to feel more confident of escaping their clutches. Leaving the room, I made my way down to the study. I was anxious to see how the door had withstood the test of that last assault. Entering, I lit two of the candles and then turned to the door. One of the large props had been displaced, and on that side the door had been forced inward some six inches. It was providential that I had managed to drive the brutes away just when I did. And that coping stone, I wondered vaguely how I had managed to dislodge it. I had not noticed it loose as I took my shot, and then, as I stood up, it had slipped away from beneath me. I felt that I owed the dismissal of the attacking force more to its timely fall than to my rifle. Then the thought came that I had better seize this chance to shore up the door again. It was evident that the creatures had not returned since the fall of the coping stone, but who was to say how long they would keep away? There and then I set to at repairing the door, working hard and anxiously. First I went down to the basement and rummaging round found several pieces of heavy oak planking. With these I returned to the study and, having removed the props, placed the planks up against the door. Then I nailed the heads of the struts to these, and driving them well home at the bottoms, nailed them again there. Thus I made the door stronger than ever for now it was solid with the backing of the boards, and would, I felt convinced, stand a heavier pressure than hitherto without giving way. After that I lit the lamp which I had brought from the kitchen, and went down to have a look at the lower windows. Now that I had seen an instance of the strength the creatures possessed, I felt considerable anxiety about the windows on the ground floor, in spite of the fact that they were so strongly barred. I went first to the buttery, having a vivid remembrance of my late adventure there. The place was chilly, and the wind, soughing in through the broken glass, produced an eerie note. Apart from the general air of dismalness, the place was as I had left it the night before. Going up to the window, I examined the bars, closely noting as I did so, their comfortable thickness. Still... As I looked more intently, it seemed to me that the middle bar was bent slightly from straight. Yet it was but trifling, and it might have been so for years. I had never before noticed them particularly. I put my hand through the broken window and shook the bar. It was as firm as rock. Perhaps the creatures had tried to start it, and, finding it beyond their powers, ceased from the effort. After that, I went round to each of the windows in turn, examining them with careful attention. But nowhere else could I trace anything to show that there had been any tampering. Having finished my survey, I went back to the study and poured myself out a little brandy. Then to the tower to watch. Chapter 8 After the Attack it was now about three a.m., and presently the eastern sky began to pale with the coming of dawn. Gradually the day came, and by its light I scanned the gardens earnestly, but nowhere could I see signs of the brutes. I bent over and glanced down to the foot of the wall to see whether the body of the thing I had shot the night before was still there. 
it was gone. I suppose that others of the monsters had removed it during the night. Then I went down onto the roof and crossed over to the gap from which the coping stone had fallen. Reaching it, I looked over. Yes, there was the stone, as I had seen it last night. But there was no appearance of anything beneath it. Nor could I see the creatures I had killed after its fall. Evidently, they also had been taken away. I turned and went down to my study. There I sat down wearily. I was thoroughly tired. It was quite light now, though the sun's rays were not as yet perceptibly hot. The clock chimed the hour of four. I awoke with a start and looked round hurriedly. The clock in the corner indicated that it was three o'clock. It was already afternoon. I must have slept for nearly eleven hours. With a jerky movement I sat forward in the chair and listened. The house was perfectly silent. Slowly I stood up and yawned. I felt desperately tired still and sat down again, wondering what it was that had waked me. It must have been the clock striking, I concluded presently, and was commencing to doze off when a sudden noise brought me back once more to life. It was the sound of a step, as of a person moving cautiously down the corridor toward my study. In an instant I was on my feet and grasping my rifle. Noiselessly I waited. Had the creatures broken in whilst I slept? Even as I questioned, the steps reached my door, halted momentarily, and then continued down the passage. Silently I tiptoed to the doorway and peeped out. Then I experienced such a feeling of relief, as must a reprieved criminal. It was my sister. She was going toward the stairs. I stepped into the hall and was about to call her when it occurred to me that it was very queer she should have crept past my door in that stealthy manner. I was puzzled, and for one brief moment the thought occupied my mind that it was not she but some fresh mystery of the house. Then, as I caught a glimpse of her old petticoat, the thought passed as quickly as it had come, and I half laughed. There could be no mistaking that ancient garment. Yet I wondered what she was doing, and remembering her condition of mind on the previous day, I felt it might be best to follow, quietly, taking care not to alarm her, and see what she was going to do. If she behaved rationally, well and good. If not... I should have to take steps to restrain her. I could run no unnecessary risks under the danger that threatened us. Quickly I reached the head of the stairs and paused a moment. Then I heard a sound that sent me leaping. At a mad rate, it was the rattle of bolts being unshot. That foolish sister of mine was actually unbarring the back door. Just as her hand was on the last bolt, I reached her. She had not seen me, and the first thing she knew I had hold of her arm. She glanced up quickly like a frightened animal and screamed aloud. "'Come, Mary,' I said sternly. "'What's the meaning of this nonsense? "'Do you mean to tell me you don't understand the danger "'that you try to throw our two lives away in this fashion?' To this she replied nothing, only trembled violently, gasping and sobbing as though in the last extremity of fear. Through some minutes I reasoned with her, pointing out the need for caution, and asking her to be brave. There was little to be afraid of now, I explained, and I tried to believe that I spoke the truth. 
but she must be sensible and not attempt to leave the house for a few days. At last I ceased, in despair. It was no use talking to her. She was obviously not quite herself for the time being. Finally I told her she had better go to her room if she could not behave rationally. Still she took not any notice. So, without more ado, I picked her up in my arms and carried her there. At first she screamed wildly, but had relapsed into silent trembling by the time I reached the stairs. Arriving at her room, I laid her upon the bed. She lay there quietly enough, neither speaking nor sobbing, just shaking in a very ague of fear. I took a rug from a chair nearby and spread it over her. I could do nothing more for her, and so crossed to where Pepper lay in a big basket. My sister had taken charge of him since his wound, to nurse him, for it had proved more severe than I had thought, and I was pleased to note that, in spite of her state of mind, she had looked after the old dog carefully. Stooping, I spoke to him, and in reply he licked my hand feebly. He was too ill to do more. Then, going to the bed, I bent over my sister and asked her how she felt. But she only shook the more, and... Much as it pained me, I had to admit that my presence seemed to make her worse. And so I left her, locking the door and pocketing the key. It seemed to be the only course to take. The rest of the day I spent between the tower and my study. For food I brought up a loaf from the pantry, and on this and some claret I lived for that day. What a long, weary day it was! If only I could have gone out into the gardens, as is my want, I should have been content enough. But to be cooped in this silent house with no companion save a mad woman and a sick dog was enough to prey upon the nerves of the hardiest. And out in the tangled shrubberies that surrounded the house lurked, for all I could tell, those infernal swine creatures waiting their chance. Was ever a man in such straits? Once in the afternoon and again later I went to visit my sister. The second time I found her tending Pepper, but at my approach she slid over unobtrusively to the far corner with a gesture that saddened me beyond belief. Poor girl! Her fear cut me intolerably, and I would not intrude on her unnecessarily. She will be better, I trusted, in a few days. Meanwhile, I could do nothing— and I judged it still needful, hard as it seemed, to keep her confined to her room. One thing there was that I took for encouragement. She had eaten some of the food I had taken to her on my first visit. And so the day passed. As the evening drew on, the air grew chilly, and I began to make preparations for passing a second night in the tower, taking up two additional rifles and a heavy ulster, the rifles I loaded and laid alongside my other, as I intended to make things warm for any of the creatures who might show during the night. I had plenty of ammunition, and I thought to give the brutes such a lesson as should show them the uselessness of attempting to force an entrance. After that, I made the round of the house again, paying particular attention to the props that supported the study door. Then, feeling that I had done all that lay in my power to ensure our safety, I returned to the tower, calling in on my sister and Pepper for a final visit on my way. Pepper was asleep, 
that woke as I entered and wagged his tail in recognition. I thought he seemed slightly better. My sister was lying on the bed, though whether asleep or not I was unable to tell. And thus I left them. Reaching the tower I made myself as comfortable as circumstances would permit, and settled down to watch through the night. Gradually darkness fell, and soon the details of the garden were merged into shadows. During the first few hours I sat listening for any sound that might help to tell me if anything were stirring down below. It was far too dark for my eyes to be of much use. Slowly the hours passed, without anything unusual happening, and the moon rose, showing the gardens apparently empty and silent, and so through the night, without disturbance or sound. Toward morning I began to grow stiff and cold with my long vigil. Also I was getting very uneasy concerning the continued quietness on the part of the creatures. I mistrusted it, and would sooner far have had them attack the house openly. Then at least I should have known my danger, and been able to meet it. But to wait like this through a whole night, picturing all kinds of unknown devilment, was to jeopardise one's sanity. Once or twice the thought came to me that perhaps they had gone, but in my heart I found it impossible to believe that it was so. Chapter 9 In the Cellars At last, what with being tired and cold and the uneasiness that possessed me, I resolved to take a walk through the house, first calling at the study for a glass of brandy to warm me. This I did, and while there I examined the door carefully, but found all as I had left it the night before. The day was just breaking as I left the tower, though it was still too dark in the house to be able to see without a light, and I took one of the study candles with me on my round. By the time I had finished the ground floor, the daylight was creeping in, wanly through the barred window. My search had shown me nothing fresh. Everything appeared to be in order, and I was on the point of extinguishing my candle when the thought suggested itself to me to have another glance round the cellars. I had not, if I remember rightly, been into them since my hasty search on the evening of the attack. For perhaps the half of a minute I hesitated. I would have been very willing to forgo the task, as indeed I am inclined to think any man well might. For all the great awe-inspiring rooms in this house, the cellars are the hugest and weirdest. Great gloomy caverns of places, unlit by any ray of daylight. Yet I would not shirk the work. I felt that to do so would smack of sheer cowardice. Besides, as I reassured myself, the cellars were really the most unlikely place in which to come across anything dangerous, considering that they can be entered only through a heavy oaken door, the key of which I carry always on my person. It is in the smallest of these places that I keep my wine, a gloomy hole close to the foot of the cellars, and beyond which I have seldom proceeded. Indeed, save for the rummage round already mentioned, I doubt whether I had ever before been right through the cellars. As I unlocked the great door at the top of the steps, I paused nervously a moment at the strange, desolate smell that assailed my nostrils. Then, throwing the barrel of my weapon forward, I descended slowly into the darkness of the underground regions. 
Reaching the bottom of the stairs, I stood for a minute and listened. All was silent, save for a faint drip, drip of water, falling drop by drop somewhere to my left. As I stood, I noticed how quietly the candle burnt, never a flicker nor flare. So utterly windless was the place. Quietly I moved from cellar to cellar. I had but a very dim memory of their arrangement. The impressions left by my first search were blurred. I had recollections of a succession of great cellars, and of one greater than the rest, the roof of which was upheld by pillars. Beyond that my mind was hazy, and predominated by a sense of cold and darkness and shadows. Now, however, it was different, for, although nervous, I was sufficiently collected to be able to look about me, and not the structure and size of the different vaults I entered. Of course, with the amount of light given by my candle, it was not possible to examine each place minutely, but I was enabled to notice, as I went along, that the walls appeared to be built with wonderful precision and finish, while here and there an occasional massive pillar shot up to support the vaulted roof. Thus I came at last to the great cellar that I remembered. It is reached through a huge arched entrance, on which I observed strange, fantastic carvings, which threw queer shadows under the light of my candle. As I stood and examined these thoughtfully, it occurred to me how strange it was that I should be so little acquainted with my own house. Yet this may be easily understood when one realises the size of this ancient pile, and the fact that only my old sister and I live in it, occupying a few of the rooms, such as our wants decide. Holding the light high, I passed on into the cellar, and, keeping to the right, paced slowly up until I reached the further end. I walked quietly and looked cautiously about as I went, but so far as the light showed I saw nothing unusual. At the top I turned to the left, still keeping to the wall, and so continued until I had traversed the whole of the vast chamber. As I moved along I noticed that the floor was composed of solid rock, in places covered with a damp mould, in others bare, or almost so, save for a thin coating of light grey dust. I had halted at the doorway. Now, however, I turned and made my way up the centre of the place, passing among the pillars and glancing to right and left as I moved. About halfway up the cellar I stubbed my foot against something that gave out a metallic sound. Stooping quickly I held the candle, and saw that the object I had kicked was a large metal ring. Bending lower, I cleared the dust from around it, and presently discovered that it was attached to a ponderous trapdoor, black with age. Feeling excited and wondering to where it could lead, I laid my gun on the floor and, sticking the candle in the trigger guard, took the ring in both hands and pulled. The trap creaked loudly, the sound echoing vaguely through the huge place, and opened heavily. Propping the edge on my knee, I reached for the candle and held it in the opening, moving it to the right and left, but could see nothing. I was puzzled and surprised. There were no signs of steps, nor even the appearance of there ever having been any. Nothing, save an empty blackness. I might have been looking down into a bottomless, sideless well. Then, even as I stared full of perplexity, I seemed to hear, far down, 
as all from untold depths, a faint whisper of sound. I bent my head quickly, more into the opening, and listened intently. It may have been fancy, but I could have sworn to hearing a soft titter that grew into a hideous chuckling, faint and distant. Startled, I leapt backwards, letting the trap fall with a hollow clang that filled the place with echoes. Even then I seemed to hear that mocking, suggestive laughter, but this I knew must be my imagination. The sound I had heard was far too slight to penetrate through the cumbrous trap. For a full minute I stood there, quivering, glancing nervously behind and before. But the great cellar was silent as a grave, and gradually I shook off the frightened sensation. With a calmer mind, I became again curious to know into what that trap opened, but could not then summon sufficient courage to make a further investigation. One thing I felt, however, was that the trap ought to be secured. This I accomplished by placing upon it several large pieces of dressed stone, which I had noticed in my tour along the east wall. Then, after a final scrutiny of the rest of the place, I retraced my way through the cellars to the stairs, and so reached the daylight with an infinite feeling of relief that the uncomfortable task was accomplished. Chapter 10 The Time of Waiting the sun was now warm and shining brightly, forming a wondrous contrast to the dark and dismal cellars, and it was with comparatively light feelings that I made my way up to the tower to survey the gardens. There I found everything quiet, and after a few minutes went down to Mary's room. Here, having knocked and received a reply, I unlocked the door. My sister was sitting quietly on the bed, as though waiting. She seemed quite herself again, and made no attempt to move away as I approached. Yet I observed that she scanned my face anxiously, as though in doubt and but half assured in her mind that there was nothing to fear from me. To my questions as to how she felt, she replied sanely enough that she was hungry and would like to go down to prepare breakfast, if I did not mind. For a minute I meditated whether it would be safe to let her out. Finally I told her she might go, on condition that she promised not to attempt to leave the house or meddle with any of the outer doors. At my mention of the doors, a sudden look of fright crossed her face. But she said nothing, save to give the required promise, and then left the room silently. Crossing the floor, I approached Pepper. He had waked as I entered, but, beyond a slight yelp of pleasure and a soft rapping with his tail, had kept quiet. Now, as I patted him, he made an attempt to stand up and succeeded, only to fall back on his side with a little yowl of pain. I spoke to him and bade him lie still. I was greatly delighted with his improvement, and also with the natural kindness of my sister's heart in taking such good care of him, in spite of her condition of mind. After a while I left him and went downstairs to my study. In a little time Mary appeared carrying a tray of which smoked a hot breakfast. As she entered the room I saw her gaze fasten on the props that supported the study door. Her lips tightened and I thought she paled slightly. But that was all. Putting down the tray at my elbow, she was leaving the room quietly when I called her back. She came, it seemed, a little timidly, as though startled, 
and I noted that her hand clutched at her apron nervously. "'Come, Mary,' I said. "'Cheer up. Things look brighter. I've seen none of the creatures since yesterday morning early.' She looked at me in a curiously puzzled manner, as though not comprehending. Then intelligence swept into her eyes and fear, but she said nothing beyond an unintelligible murmur of acquiescence. After that I kept silence. It was evident that any reference to the swine things was more than her shaken nerves could bear. Breakfast over, I went up to the tower. Here, during the greater part of the day, I maintained a strict watch over the gardens. Once or twice I went down to the basement to see how my sister was getting along. Each time I found her quiet and curiously submissive. Indeed, on the last occasion, she even ventured to address me on her own account, with regard to some household matter that needed attention. Though this was done with an almost extraordinary timidity, I held it with happiness, as being the first word voluntarily spoken since the critical moment when I had caught her unbarring the back door to go out among those waiting brutes. I wondered whether she was aware of her attempt, and how near a thing it had been but refrained from questioning her, thinking it best to let well alone. That night I slept in a bed, the first time for two nights. In the morning I rose early and took a walk through the house. All was as it should be, and I went up to the tower to have a look at the gardens. Here again I found perfect quietness. At breakfast, when I met Mary, I was greatly pleased to see that she had sufficiently regained command over herself to be able to greet me in a perfectly natural manner. She talked sensibly and quietly, only keeping carefully from any mention of the past couple of days. In this I humoured her, to the extent of not attempting to lead the conversation in that direction. Earlier in the morning I had been to see Pepper. He was mending rapidly, and bade fair to be on his legs in earnest in another day or two. Before leaving the breakfast table, I made some reference to his improvement. In the short discussion that followed, I was surprised to gather, from my sister's remarks, that she was still under the impression that his wound had been given by the wildcat of my invention. It made me feel almost ashamed of myself for deceiving her. Yet the lie had been told to prevent her from being frightened. And then I had been sure that she must have known the truth later, when those brutes had attacked the house. During the day I kept on the alert, spending much of my time, as on the previous day, in the tower. But not a sign could I see of the swine creatures, nor hear any sound. Several times the thought had come to me that the things had at last left us, but up to this time I had refused to entertain the idea seriously. Now, however, I began to feel that there was reason for hope. It would soon be three days since I had seen any of the things. But still... I intended to use the utmost caution. For all that I could tell, this protracted silence might be a ruse to tempt me from the house, perhaps right into their arms. The thought of such a contingency was alone sufficient to make me circumspect. So it was that the fourth, fifth, and sixth days went by quietly, without my making any attempt to leave the house. On the sixth day, I had the pleasure of seeing Pepper once more upon his feet, 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And though still very weak, he managed to keep me company during the whole of that day. Chapter 11 The Searching of the Gardens how slowly the time went, and never a thing to indicate that any of the brutes still infested the gardens. It was on the ninth day that, finally, I decided to run the risk, if any there were, and sally out. With this purpose in view, I loaded one of the shotguns, carefully choosing it as being more deadly than a rifle at close quarters, and then, after a final scrutiny of the grounds, from the tower I called Pepper to follow me and made my way down to the basement. At the door, I must confess to hesitating a moment. The thought of what might be awaiting me among the dark shrubberies was by no means calculated to encourage my resolution. It was but a second, though, and then I had drawn the bolts and was standing on the path outside the door. Pepper followed, stopping at the doorstep to sniff suspiciously, and carrying his nose up and down the jams as though following a scent. Then... Suddenly he turned sharply and started to run here and there, in semicircles and circles all around the door, finally returning to the threshold. Here he began again to nose about. Hitherto I had stood watching the dog, yet all the time with half my gaze on the wild tangle of gardens stretching round me. Now I went toward him, and, bending down, examined the surface of the door where he was smelling. I found that the wood was covered with a network of scratches, crossing and recrossing one another in inextricable confusion. In addition to this, I noticed that the doorposts themselves were gnawed in places. Beyond these I could find nothing, and so, standing up, I began to make the tour of the house wall. Pepper, as soon as I walked away, left the door and ran ahead, still nosing and sniffing as he went along. At times he stopped to investigate— here it would be a bullet hole in a pathway, or perhaps a powder-stained wad. Anon it might be a piece of torn sword or a disturbed patch of weedy path, but, save for such trifles, he found nothing. I observed him critically as he went along, 
and could discover nothing of uneasiness in his demeanour to indicate that he felt the nearness of any of the creatures. By this I was assured that the gardens were empty, at least for the present of those hateful things. Pepper could not be easily deceived, and it was a relief to feel that he would know, and give me timely warning if there were any danger. Reaching the place where I had shot the first creature, I stopped and made a careful scrutiny, but could see nothing. From there I went on to where the great coping stone had fallen. It lay on its side, apparently just as it had been when I shot the brute that was moving it. A couple of feet to the right of the nearer end was a great dent in the ground, showing where it had struck. The other end was still within the indentation, half in and half out. Going nearer, I looked at the stone more closely. What a huge piece of masonry it was! And that creature had moved it single-handed in its attempt to reach what lay below. I went round to the further end of the stone. Here I found that it was possible to see under it for a distance of nearly a couple of feet. Still, I could see nothing of the stricken creatures, and I felt much surprised. I had, as I have before said, guessed that the remains had been removed. Yet I could not conceive that it had been done so thoroughly as not to leave some certain sign beneath the stone, indicative of their fate. I had seen several of the brutes struck down beneath it, with such force that they must have been literally driven into the earth. And now not a vestige of them was to be seen. Not even a bloodstain. I felt more puzzled than ever as I turned the matter over in my mind, but could think of no plausible explanation, and so finally gave it up as one of the many things that were unexplainable. From there I transferred my attention to the study door. I could see now, even more plainly, the effects of the tremendous strain to which it had been subjected, and I marvelled how, even with the support afforded by the props, it had withstood the attack so well. There were no marks of blows. Indeed, none had been given, but the door had been literally riven from its hinges by the application of enormous silent force. One thing I had observed affected me profoundly. The head of one of the props had been driven right through a panel. This was of itself sufficient to show how huge an effort the creatures had made to break down the door, and how nearly they had succeeded. Leaving, I continued my tour around the house, finding little else of interest, save at the back, where I came across the piece of piping I had torn from the wall, lying among the long grass underneath the broken window. Then I returned to the house, and having rebolted the back door, went up to the tower. Here I spent the afternoon reading and occasionally glancing down into the gardens. I had determined, if the night passed quietly, to go as far as the pit on the morrow. Perhaps I should be able to learn, then, something of what had happened. The day slipped away, and the night came and went much as the last few nights had gone. When I rose, the morning had broken fine and clear, and I determined to put my project into action. During breakfast I considered the matter, carefully, after which I went to the study for my shotgun. In addition, I loaded and slipped into my pocket a small but heavy pistol. I quite understood that if there were any danger, it lay in the direction of the pit, and I intended to be prepared. Leaving the study, I went down to the back door, followed by Pepper. Once outside, I took a quick survey of the surrounding gardens, and then set off toward the pit. On the way, I kept a sharp lookout, holding my gun handily. Pepper was running ahead, I noticed, without any apparent hesitation. 
From this I augured that there was no imminent danger to be apprehended, and I stepped out more quickly in his wake. He had reached the top of the pit now, and was nosing his way along the edge. A minute later I was beside him looking down into the pit. For a moment I could scarcely believe that it was the same place, so greatly was it changed. The dark, wooded ravine of a fortnight ago, with a foliage-hidden stream running sluggishly at the bottom, existed no longer. Instead, my eyes showed me a ragged chasm, partly filled with a gloomy lake of turbid water. All one side of the ravine was stripped of underwood showing the bare rock. A little to my left, the side of the pit appeared to have collapsed altogether, forming a deep V-shape cleft in the face of the rocky cliff. This rift ran from the upper edge of the ravine nearly down to the water, and penetrated into the pit side, to a distance of some forty feet. Its opening was at least six yards across, and from this it seemed to taper into about two. But what attracted my attention more than even the stupendous split itself was a great hole some distance down the cleft and right in the angle of the V. It was clearly defined and not unlike an arched doorway in shape, though lying as it did in the shadow I could not see it very distinctly. The opposite side of the pit still retained its verdure, but so torn in places and everywhere covered with dust and rubbish that it was hardly distinguishable as such. My first impression that there had been a landslip was, I began to see, not sufficient of itself to account for all the changes I witnessed. And the water? I turned suddenly, for I had become aware that somewhere to my right there was a noise of running water. I could see nothing, but now that my attention had been caught, I distinguished easily that it came from somewhere at the east end of the pit. Slowly I made my way in that direction, the sound growing plainer as I advanced, until in a little I stood right above it. Even then I could not perceive the cause until I knelt down and thrust my head over the cliff. Here the noise came up to me plainly, and I saw below me a torrent of clear water issuing from a small fissure in the pit side, and rushing down the rocks into the lake beneath. A little further along the cliff I saw another, and beyond that again two smaller ones. These, then, would help to account for the quantity of water in the pit, and, if the fall of rock and earth had blocked the outlet of the stream at the bottom, there was little doubt but that it was contributing a very large share. Yet I puzzled my head to account for the generally shaken appearance of the place. These streamlets and that huge cleft further up the ravine. It seemed to me that more than the landslip was necessary to account for these. I could imagine an earthquake or a great explosion creating some such condition of affairs as existed. But of these there had been neither. Then I stood up quickly remembering that crash and the cloud of dust that had followed directly, rushing high into the air. "'but I shook my head unbelievingly. "'No! "'It must have been the noise of the falling rocks and earth I had heard. "'Of course the dust would fly, naturally. "'Still, in spite of my reasoning, "'I had an uneasy feeling "'that this theory did not satisfy my sense of the probable, "'and yet was any other that I could suggest "'likely to be half so plausible. "'Pepper had been sitting on the grass "'while I conducted my examination.' Now, as I turned up the north side of the ravine, he rose and followed. Slowly, and keeping a careful watch in all directions, I made the circuit of the pit, but found little else that I had not already seen. From the west end I could see the four waterfalls uninterruptedly. 
They were some considerable distance up from the surface of the lake, about fifty feet, I calculated. For a little while longer I loitered about, keeping my eyes and ears open, but still without seeing or hearing anything suspicious. The whole place was wonderfully quiet. Indeed, save for the continuous murmur of the water at the top end, no sound of any description broke the silence. All this while Pepper had shown no signs of uneasiness. This seemed to me to indicate that, for the time being at least, there was none of the swine creatures in the vicinity. So far as I could see, his attention appeared to have been taken chiefly with scratching and sniffing among the grass at the edge of the pit. At times he would leave the edge and run along toward the house, as though following invisible tracks, but in all cases returning after a few minutes. I had little doubt that he was really tracing out the footsteps of the swine things, and the very fact that each one seemed to lead him back to the pit appeared to me a proof that the brutes had all returned whence they came. At noon I went home for dinner. During the afternoon I made a partial search of the gardens accompanied by Pepper, but without coming upon anything to indicate the presence of the creatures. Once, as we made our way through the shrubberies, Pepper rushed in among some bushes with a fierce yelp. At that I jumped back in sudden fright and threw my gun forward in readiness, only to laugh nervously as Pepper reappeared chasing an unfortunate cat. Toward evening I gave up the search and returned to the house. All at once, as we were passing a great clump of bushes on the right, Pepper disappeared, and I could hear him sniffing and growling among them, in a suspicious manner. With my gun barrel I parted the intervening shrubbery and looked inside. There was nothing to be seen, save that many of the branches were bent down and broken, as though some animal had made a lair there at no very previous date. It was probably, I thought, one of the places occupied by some of the swine creatures on the night of the attack. Next day I resumed my search through the gardens, but without result. By evening I had been right through them, and now I knew, beyond the possibility of doubt, that there were no longer any of the things concealed about the place. Indeed, I have often thought since that I was correct in my earlier surmise that they had left soon after the attack. Chapter 12 The Subterranean Pit Another week came and went, during which I spent a great deal of my time about the pit mouth. I had come to the conclusion a few days earlier that the arched hole in the angle of the Great Rift was the place through which the swine things had made their exit from some unholy place in the bowels of the world. How near the probable truth this went, I was to learn later. It may be easily understood that I was tremendously curious, though in a frightened way, to know to what infernal place that hole led, though so far the idea had not struck me seriously of making an investigation. I was far too much imbued with a sense of horror of the swine creatures to think of venturing willingly where there was any chance of coming into contact with them. Gradually, however, as time passed, this feeling grew insensibly less so that when, a few days later, the thought occurred to me that it might be possible to clamber down and have a look into the hole. I was not so exceedingly averse to it as might have been imagined. Still, I do not think, even then, 
that I really intended to try any such foolhardy adventure. For all that I could tell, it might be certain death to enter the doleful-looking opening. And yet, such is the pertinacity of human curiosity, that, at last, my chief desire was but to discover what lay beyond that gloomy entrance. Slowly, as the days slid by, my fear of the swine-things became an emotion of the past, more an unpleasant, incredible memory than aught else. Thus a day came when, throwing thoughts and fancies adrift, I procured a rope from the house, and, having made it fast to a stout tree at the top of the rift and some little distance back from the pit edge, let the other end down into the cleft until it dangled right across the mouth of the dark hole. Then, cautiously, and with many misgivings as to whether or not it was a mad act that I was attempting, I climbed down, using the rope as a support, until I reached the hole. Here, still holding on to the rope, I stood and peered in. All was perfectly dark, and not a sound came to me. Yet, a moment later, it seemed that I could hear something. I held my breath and listened. But all was silent as the grave, and I breathed freely once more. At the same instant I heard the sound again. It was like a noise of laboured breathing, deep and sharp-drawn. For a second I stood petrified, not able to move. But now the sounds had ceased again, and I could hear nothing. As I stood there anxiously, my foot dislodged a pebble which fell inward into the dark with a hollow chink. At once the noise was taken up and repeated a score of times, each succeeding echo being fainter and seeming to travel away from me, as though into remote distance. Then, as the silence fell again, I heard that stealthy breathing. For each respiration I made I could hear an answering breath. The sound appeared to be coming nearer, and then I heard several others, but fainter and more distant. Why I did not grip the rope and spring up out of danger I cannot say. It was as though I had been paralysed. I broke out into a profuse sweat and tried to moisten my lips with my tongue. My throat had gone suddenly dry and I coughed huskily. It came back to me in a dozen horrible throaty tones mockingly. I peered helplessly into the gloom, but still nothing showed. I had a strange choky sensation, and again I coughed dryly. Again the echo took it up, rising and falling grotesquely and dying slowly into a muffled silence. Then suddenly a thought came to me and I held my breath. The other breathing stopped. I breathed again, and once more it recommenced. But now I no longer feared. I knew that the strange sounds were not made by any lurking swine creatures, but were simply the echo of my own respirations. Yet I had received such a fright that I was glad to scramble up the rift and haul up the rope. I was far too shaken and nervous to think of entering the dark hole then, and so returned to the house. I felt more myself next morning, but even then I could not summon up sufficient courage to explore the place. All this time the water in the pit had been creeping slowly up, and now stood but a little below the opening— at the rate at which it was rising it would be level with the floor in less than another week, and I realised that, unless I carried out my investigation soon, I should probably never do so at all, as the water would rise and rise, 
until the opening itself was submerged. It may have been that this thought stirred me to act, but whatever it was, a couple of days later saw me standing at the top of the cleft, fully equipped for the task. This time I was resolved to conquer my shirking and go right through with the matter. With this intention I had brought, in addition to the rope, a bundle of candles meaning to use them as a torch, also my double-barreled shotgun. In my belt I held a heavy horse pistol loaded with buckshot. As before, I fastened the rope to the tree. Then, having tied my gun across my shoulders with a piece of stout cord, I lowered myself over the edge of the pit. At this moment Pepper, who had been eyeing my actions, watching, rose to his feet and ran to me with a half-bark, half-wail. It seemed to me of warning. But I was resolved on my enterprise and bade him lie down. I would much have liked to take him with me, but this was next to impossible in the existing circumstances. As my face dropped level with the pit edge, he licked me right across the mouth, and then, seizing my sleeve between his teeth, began to pull back strongly. It was very evident that he did not want me to go. Yet having made up my mind, I had no intention of giving up the attempt, and with a sharp word to Pepper to release me, I continued my descent, leaving the poor old fellow at the top, barking and crying like a forsaken pup. Carefully I lowered myself from projection to projection. I knew that a slip might mean a wetting. Reaching the entrance, I let go the rope and untied the gun from my shoulders. Then, with a last look at the sky, which I noticed was clouding over rapidly, I went forward a couple of paces, so as to be shielded from the wind, and lit one of the candles. Holding it above my head and grasping my gun firmly, I began to move on, slowly, throwing my glances in all directions. For the first minute I could hear the melancholy sound of Pepper's howling coming down to me. Gradually, as I penetrated further into the darkness, it grew fainter until, in a little while, I could hear nothing. The path tended downward somewhat and to the left, thence it kept on, still running to the left, until I found that it was leading me right in the direction of the house. Very cautiously, I moved onward, stopping every few steps to listen. I had gone perhaps a hundred yards when, suddenly, it seemed to me that I caught a faint sound somewhere along the passage behind. With my heart thudding heavily, I listened. The noise grew plainer and appeared to be approaching rapidly. I could hear it distinctly now. It was the soft padding of running feet. In the first moments of fright I stood irresolute, not knowing whether to go forward or backward. Then, with a sudden realisation of the best thing to do, I backed up to the rocky wall on my right, and holding the candle above my head, waited, gun in hand, cursing my foolhardy curiosity for bringing me into such a strait. I had not long to wait, but a few seconds, before two eyes reflected back from the gloom the rays of my candle. I raised my gun, using my right hand only, and aimed quickly. Even as I did so, something leapt out of the darkness with a blustering bark of joy that woke the echoes like thunder. It was Pepper. How had he contrived to scramble down the cleft I could not conceive? As I brushed my hand nervously over his coat, I noticed that he was dripping, and concluded that he must have tried to follow me and fallen into the water, from which he could not find it very difficult to climb. Having waited a minute or so, to steady myself, I proceeded along the way, 
Pepper following quietly. I was curiously glad to have the old fellow with me. He was company, and somehow with him at my heels I was less afraid. Also I knew how quickly his keen ears would detect the presence of any unwelcome creature, should there be such amid the darkness that wrapped us. For some minutes we went slowly along, the path still leading straight toward the house. Soon I concluded we should be standing right beneath it, did the path but carry far enough. I led the way cautiously for another fifty yards or so, then I stopped and held the light high, and reason enough I had to be thankful that I did so, for there, not three paces forward, the path vanished, and in place showed a hollow blackness that sent sudden fear through me. Very cautiously I crept forward and peered down, but could see nothing. Then I crossed to the left of the passage to see whether there might be any continuation of the path. Here, right against the wall, I found that a narrow track, some three feet wide, led onward. Carefully I stepped onto it, but had not gone far before I regretted venturing thereon. For, after a few paces, the already narrow way resolved itself into a mere ledge, with on the other side the solid, unyielding rock towering up in a great wall to the unseen roof, and on the other that yawning chasm. I could not help reflecting how helpless I was, should I be attacked there with no room to turn, and where even the recoil of my weapon might be sufficient to drive me headlong into the depths below. To my great relief, a little further on, the track suddenly broadened out again to its original breadth. Gradually, as I went onward, I noticed that the path trended slightly to the right, and so, after some minutes, I discovered that I was not going forward, but simply circling the huge abyss. I had, evidently, come to the end of the great passage. Five minutes later I stood on the spot from which I had started. Having been completely round what I guess now to be a vast pit, the mouth of which must be at least a hundred yards across. For some little time I stood there lost in perplexing thought. What does it all mean, was the cry that had begun to reiterate through my brain. A sudden idea struck me, and I searched round for a piece of stone. Presently I found a bit of rock about the size of a small loaf. Sticking the candle upright in a crevice of the floor, I went back from the edge somewhat, and taking a short run, launched the stone forward into the chasm, my idea being to throw it far enough to keep it clear of the sides. Then I stooped forward and listened, but though I kept perfectly quiet, for at least a full minute no sound came back to me from out of the dark. I knew then that the depth of the hole must be immense, for the stone, had it struck anything, was large enough to have set the echoes of that weird place whispering for an indefinite period. Even as it was, the cabin had given back the sounds of my footfalls multitudinously. The place was awesome, and I would willingly have retraced my steps, and left the mysteries of its solitudes unsolved. Only to do so meant admitting defeat. Then a thought came to me to try to get to view of the abyss. It occurred to me that if I place my candles round the edge of the hole, I shall be able to get at least some dim sight of the place. I found on counting that I had brought fifteen candles in the bundle. My first intention had been, as I have already said, to make a torch of the lot. 
These I proceeded to place round the pit mouth, with an interval of about twenty yards between each. Having completed the circle, I stood in the passage and endeavoured to get an idea of how the place looked. But I discovered immediately that they were totally insufficient for my purpose. They did little more than make the gloom visible. One thing they did, however, and that was they confirmed my opinion of the size of the opening. And although they showed me nothing that I wanted to see, yet the contrast they afforded to the heavy darkness pleased me curiously. It was as though fifteen tiny stars shone through the subterranean night. Then, even as I stood, Pepper gave a sudden howl that was taken up by the echoes and repeated with ghastly variations, dying away slowly. With a quick movement I held aloft the one candle that I had kept, and glanced down at the dog. At the same moment I seemed to hear a noise, like a diabolical chuckle rise up from the hitherto silent depths of the pit. I started. Then I recollected that it was probably the echo of Pepper's howl. Pepper had moved away from me up the passage a few steps. He was nosing along the rocky floor, and I thought I heard him lapping. I went towards him, holding the candle low. As I moved, I heard my boot go sop, sop, and the light was reflected from something that glistened and crept past my feet swiftly toward the pit. I bent lower and looked, then gave vent to an expression of surprise. From somewhere higher up the path a stream of water was running quickly in the direction of the great opening, and growing in size every second. Again Pepper gave vent to that deep-drawn howl, and running at me seized my coat and attempted to drag me up the path towards the entrance. With a nervous gesture I shook him off and crossed quickly over to the left-hand wall. If anything were coming I was going to have the wall at my back. Then as I stared anxiously up the pathway, my candle caught a gleam far up the passage. At the same moment I became conscious of a murmurous roar that grew louder and filled the whole cavern with deafening sound. From the pit came a deep, hollow echo, like the sob of a giant. Then I had sprung to the one side of the narrow ledge that ran round the abyss, and turning saw a great wall of foam sweep past me and leap tumultuously into the waiting chasm. A cloud of spray burst over me, extinguishing my candle and wetting me to the skin. I still held my gun. The three nearest candles went out, but the further ones gave only a short flicker. After the first rush the flow of water eased down to a steady stream, maybe a foot in depth, though I could not see this until I had procured one of the lighted candles, and with it started to reconnoitre. Pepper had, fortunately, followed me as I leapt for the ledge, and now, very much subdued, kept close behind. A short examination showed me that the water reached right across the passage and was running at a tremendous rate. Already, even as I stood there, it had deepened. I could make only a guess at what had happened. Evidently, the water in the ravine had broken into the passage by some means. If that were the case, it would go on increasing in volume until I should find it impossible to leave the place. The thought was frightening. It was evident that I must make my exit as hurriedly as possible. Taking my gun by the stock, I sounded the water. It was a little under knee-deep. The noise it made plunging down into the pit was deafening. Then, with a call to Pepper, I stepped out into the flood, using the gun as a staff. Instantly the water boiled up over my knees and nearly to the tops of my thighs with the speed at which it was racing. For one short moment I nearly lost my footing, 
but the thought of what lay behind stimulated me to a fierce endeavour, and step by step I made headway. Of Pepper I knew nothing at first. I had all I could do to keep on my legs, and was overjoyed when he appeared beside me. He was wading manfully along. He is a big dog with longish thin legs, and I suppose the water had less grasp on them than upon mine. Anyway, he managed a great deal better than I did going ahead of me like a guide, and wittingly, or otherwise, helping somewhat to break the force of the water. On we went, step by step, struggling and gasping, until somewhere about a hundred yards had been safely traversed. Then, whether it was because I was taking less care, or that there was a slippery place on the rocky floor, I cannot say, but suddenly I slipped and fell on my face. Instantly the water leapt over me in a cataract, hurling me down towards that bottomless hole at a frightful speed. Frantically I struggled, but it was impossible to get a footing. I was helpless, gasping and drowning. All at once something gripped my coat and brought me to a standstill. It was Pepper. Missing me, he must have raced back through the dark turmoil to find me, and then caught and held me until I was able to get to my feet. I have a dim recollection of having seen, momentarily, the gleams of several lights, but of this I have never quite been sure. If my impressions are correct, I must have been washed down to the very brink of that awful chasm before Pepper managed to bring me to a standstill. And the lights, of course, could only have been the distant flames of the candles I had left burning. But, as I have said, I am not by any means sure. My eyes were full of water, and I had been badly shaken. And there was I, without my helpful gun, without light, and sadly confused with the water deepening, depending solely upon my old friend Pepper to help me out of that hellish place. I was facing the torrent, Naturally, it was the only way in which I could have sustained my position a moment, for even old Pepper could not have held me long against that terrific strain without assistance, however blind from me. Perhaps a minute passed, during which it was touch and go with me. Then, gradually, I recommenced my torturous way up the passage, and so began the grimmest fight with death from which ever I hoped to emerge victorious. Slowly, furiously, almost hopelessly, I strove, and that faithful pepper led me, dragged me upward and onward, until, at last, ahead I saw a gleam of blessed light. It was the entrance. Only a few yards further, and I reached the opening, with the water surging and boiling hungrily around my loins. And now I understood the cause of the catastrophe. It was raining heavily, literally in torrents. The surface of the lake was level with the bottom of the opening. Nay, more than level, it was above it. Evidently the rain had swollen the lake and caused this premature rise, for at the rate the ravine had been filling it would not have reached the entrance for a couple more days. Luckily the rope by which I had ascended was streaming into the opening upon the inrushing waters. Seizing the end, I knotted it securely round Pepper's body. Then, summoning up the last remnant of my strength, I commenced to swarm up the side of the cliff. I reached the pit edge in the last stage of exhaustion. Yet I had to make one more effort 
and haul Pepper into safety. Slowly and wearily, I hauled on the rope. Once or twice it seemed that I should have to give up, for Pepper is a weighty dog, and I was utterly done. Yet to let go would have meant certain death to the old fellow, and the thought spurred me to greater exertions. I have but a very hazy remembrance of the end. I recall pulling through moments that lagged strangely. I have also some recollection of seeing Pepper's muzzle appearing over the pit edge after what seemed an indefinite period of time. Then all grew suddenly dark. Thank you, William Hope Hodgson, and thank you, Nicholas Cam. A few words. H.P. Lovecraft lists this and other Hodgsonian works among his greatest influences. Let me read a few excerpts from some Lovecraftian correspondences. This is H.P. Lovecraft to Robert Barlow on 14 August 1934. Lovecraft writes, Well, I've gotten around at least to the William Hope Hodgson books and am very pleasantly disappointed. The Boats of the Glen Carrig is really magnificent except for a slight letdown and petering out, adventure and romance gaining the ascendancy in the last quarter. It concerns the survivors of a wrecked ship and the strange unknown realms of horror to which they drift in small boats. In most cases, these horrors are only vaguely adumbrated and subtly manifested in a way strongly suggesting Blackwood's willows. Clearly, Karnacki was no real test of Hodgson, and I fancy good old Kavavan's praise must have been based on a perusal of the other items. I am now reading The House on the Borderland, and it looks as if it were going to be great— the boy has atmosphere and his characters react to abnormal phenomenon in the right way. If you like, I'll sub-sub-lend you these volumes. They belong to Koenig and come to me from Clark Ashton. They're certainly worth reading, and I believe Hodgson really ought to go into my supernatural horror article. The one main fault of the Glen Carrig is the sort of pseudo-archaic 18th-century English being employed— Actually, it is not the English of the 18th century at all, being stilted and romantic and full of expressions out of keeping with the period. The novel was published in 1907, seven years before Karnacki, if I recall correct. The one I'm now reading is dated 1908 and deals with phenomena in a ferociously situated and evilly regarded house on the edge of a sinister chasm in the west of Ireland. The third book, The Ghost Pirates, has a, an ominous frontispiece by Sim, which you'd enjoy. And this is Lovecraft to Robert Barlow on 22 August 1934. Have read all three Hodgson books and sink me if they aren't magnificent. 
The second one, the house in the borderland, had some cosmic stuff in it that got Grandpa up on his hind legs yelling. The dead writer of the diary, his mind projected forward in time, witnesses the destruction of the solar system. I've prepared a note to insert in my article at the proper point near the end of Chapter 9 and sent it to Hornig. Hodgson simply can't be left out of any historical survey of this sort, and he certainly deserves to be brought to notice. Without question, Karnacki must be his very poorest work. Well, I've rather enjoyed the Karnacki stories, but there we have it. They're not for everyone. And compared with uh, William Hope Hodgson's truly weird and horrific tales, well, they do pale. Next week, the next few chapters of House in the Borderland end. A treat. A very special edition of Sylvia Schultz's Lights Out, in which our intrepid ghost hunter interviews Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross about their stay in a haunted cabin. Fun, fun stuff. I'm looking forward to it. This week, as with last week, our narrator has been Mr. Nicholas Cam. Nick can be found on the web at, well, at the address on our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com. Nick is an actor. He lives in England. He works in film and television and has recently taken up the professional reading of books. He says he has just completed work on what he calls a bucket list kind of job about which he cannot speak. And after all that, he says he is delighted, finally, to be a voice in the night here in the nook on Tales to Terrify. Thanks again, Nick, for a fantastic job. And there it is for the week. Be upstanding, gather yourselves, and be off with you, children of the night. By the way, stick to the side streets and the quieter alleys tonight, and you can avoid the blue people of Cubs fandom. They can be the real dangers of late-night wandering in this neighborhood, especially on game-loss days. Forget the swine things, they're just grunting, snorting, figments of the imagination. Now, just go on home, feed the cat, turn in, and I hope, unlike our storied recluse, that you know all the hidden parts of your home. You do, of course, do you not? Yes. Nevertheless, make sure your windows and doors, closets, and other spaces are locked, of course, because you'll want to save the night for pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasts. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Casting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>